Today we're kicking off a new series titled Helping the Next Gen Win, Helping the Next Gen Win. And I'm really excited about being able to, to launch this series off with us today uh, because I think we're in a very unique season in the life uh, of our church. In just a couple of weeks, we're going to be launching uh, our student ministry known as Students. And we're really looking forward to all that God is going to do there. Uh, for many of you as parents, you are getting ready to get uh, your kids prepared for going back uh, to school and all of the stress that that entails. But also, uh, if we're honest, some of the joy of knowing that you're not going to have to be with them all of the time for the next uh, a couple of months. And so uh, for us, as we jump into this series, Helping the Next Gen Win, I, I also want to just be kind of really clear uh, with what we're doing over the next two weeks uh, so you don't check out or don't think that this series is, is not for you. This is not a parenting series. This is not a series just about kids and teenagers. We'll get to that in a minute. It's really about all of us and God's invitation to all of us to be a part of helping the next gen win. And so today I'm going to define some terms and we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 together. But the first thing I've got to do is talk about generations for a minute, if I can. Uh, this is my doctoral research, so if I nerd out a little bit, I apologize in advance. I've been reading a lot about this stuff and writing a lot about it. But the, the term or the concept of generational theory or generations, if you will, is something that is really, really interesting uh, to study. And, and today, there are about five different types of generations that still uh, live with predominantly within uh, kind of the North American context, some of the terms I'm about to use. But here's what's true about you in the room, that you fall into one of these uh, generational groups. And so we're going to play a little game as we start here to help you identify with what uh, generation you're a part of. So we're, the first picture we're going to put up uh, is this one. This group was born from 1930 to 1946. Does anybody know what this generation is called? Anyone know? The greatest generation. That's correct. Tom Brokaw. Tom Brokaw actually uh, coined this term, describing the generation that was born from 1930 to 1946, who really endured and experienced the Great Depression, World War II, and just a significant amount of tumult around the world during that time. And so do we have anybody from the greatest generation? Anybody? Uh, do we have anyone from the greatest generation? All right. All right. Good, good, good. Awesome. Can we honor the greatest generation in the house? So cool. So awesome. The greatest generation was followed then uh, by a group called the Baby Boomers. Do we have any Baby Boomers in the house, 1946 to 1964? Some of you don't want to admit it. I get it. It's okay. Uh, the, the Baby Boomers The baby boomers were marked uh, by, I th really think this photo does a good job. Um, there was a boom of babies after World War II because there were a lot uh, of, of fellas that were overseas uh, at war who, you know, proposed to their girlfriends and wrote them letters and that kind of stuff when they were like 16 and then they came back and started having kids at 19 and you're like one of 37 kids, right? Like at your house and all that kind of stuff. This generation is when suburbia became a thing and when people moved out uh, further out of the city to build bigger homes so they could fit more kids. That's the baby boomer generation. Maybe you find yourself in that. Then there's the, the next generation, Gen X. Where are my Gen Xers at? Any Gen Xers in the house? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, half of you are super excited. The rest of you are really angsty. It depends on if you listen to Kurt Cobain or the, the Fresh Prince, you know, like that's kind of the situation uh, for you. But but this generation was really marked by um, kind of growing up in, in, a, in a world of uh, a more free thought, more free thinking, a, a beginning to question the kind of the industri industry as we saw it, the government as we saw it. And then we hit um, this gener generation born in 1982 to 1999 called the Millennial Generation, the Millennials, right? Yeah, the, 
the millennials. Um, I think this picture does a really good job of describing millennials. I'm a millennial. Uh, here you see some people taking a selfish. I mean, a selfie. That's what. That's what it is. Um, but millennials are marked by uh, a, a great degree of prosperity um, growing up. But uh, we were also marked by a really significant moment in, in, in history, really global history, uh, which was 9-11. Every millennial was a child um, or was uh, in their formative years during 9-11. And a lot of research has been done here in this generation. And it, it helps kind of describe us in some ways. The reason why millennials are more likely to go on trips than, than maybe preceding generations, the, the, the more likely... The, the reason why millennials are more likely to, you know, backpack in, you know, New Zealand and then, you know, study abroad but not take a class in Spain. The reason why they're more likely to do that is because millennials, based upon what they saw from 9-11, uh, have lived with this very real fear and acknowledgement of the temporality of life. And so their value system is different. Their priorities are different. And yeah, millennials sometimes get a bad rap, but millennials have also made a significant impact uh, to society. I, I will, will acknowledge though, you know, when you ever see somebody like in your generation or somebody that, you know, you have to identify with doing something that's ridiculous, it's just like, come on, man. Like I read an article just recently about a family who had to go to court to evict their 30-year-old son from their basement. And I'm like, there's no more a millennial stereotype than that. Like, thanks, man. Like, thanks a lot, right? Now, now, interestingly enough, like there's a group that comes after millennials who, who for a long time have been thrown into this group, uh, but I'm just going to be real. You're not cool enough to hang with us. It's Generation Z, uh, and they were born from 1997 to 2015. And Gen Zers are, are really kind of marked by the fact that while we as millennials grew up with Facebook and now, uh, you know, you Gen Xers and baby boomers have taken it from us, as much as we grew up with it. Um, Gen Zers, Gen Zers grew up with tablets and apps in their hand. They're app native. I mean, my, my six year old, I'm kind of concerned. I think my six year old's best friend might be someone named Alexa. And I'm not talking about the girl down the street. All right. Like it's a little bit concerning, right? How much technology our kids have access to. And so, so Gen Z in a lot of ways has been marked by technology. They've been marked by uh, being reared and by, by having parents that uh, grew up as millennial or Gen X. I mean, it's crazy in my house. We're millennial parents, Stacey and I, uh, that are, two of our kids are Gen Z. Uh, and then two of our other kids born after 2015 uh, are in a generation that has not yet had a name. I'm going to call it Generation Infinity and Beyond because that's what it is for now, right? Those are the generations that are in play. Now, when you hear the word generation, it's probably what you think about, right? You think about the kind of group of people that you grew up with, the people that share similar ideologies for, as you, similar stories, you know? Maybe it's, you know, you grew up with watching Cheers, like that was your show, or Friends and Seinfeld, right? That's a generation, right? Or, you know, the, the greatest generation, you know, you know, Parks and Rec. And if you're like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, Colin, it's because you're part of the greatest generation, right? Like that whole deal. But, but the reality is, is, as much as we think about it that way, Especially if we think about it that way. I want to, over the next two weeks, provide for us perhaps a broader, perhaps I think a more robust, perhaps I think more in alignment with, with what we see in the Bible, definition of what the next generation is. And to do that, I, I want to answer these two questions as we jump in to our series. Who is the next gen? And what is the win? What are we trying to help them win? So, so here's the question. Who is the next gen? The next gen is anyone, write this down, anyone who is coming 
after you. That's why I think this series is so important. Because what we're going to talk about, if you're a part of the greatest generation, means that you have the opportunity to impact baby boomers and Gen Xers and millennials. We're talking about your impact in every capacity of our church. If you're a baby boomer, we're talking about your impact in every capacity of our church. Let me just be really clear. This is not a two-week infomercial on kids' ministry and and, and student ministry. It is not a two-week series on parenting. It's an invitation to all of us to acknowledge that God has invited every single one of us to help the people coming after us win. Which then begs this question, what is the win? I'm a first-generation immigrant, so I come from a background and from families that have done a lot to to make it here in the United States. And so when we think about the next-gen winning in our family, a lot of it kind of was tied around this concept of standard of living, that, that the goal really for for my grandparents was to create an environment that would be better for my parents and that my parents' goal was to try and create an environment that would be better for me, that we would increase the amount of opportunity that every succeeding generation would have. That in many ways, our ceiling, right, would be the next generation's floor. And so when I was deciding where I was going to college, it wasn't just my decision. It was a decision where I was essentially carrying the history of my family with me to that moment because so many people had sacrificed so much to see me step into that place. The whole goal, right, was to increase your standard of living. And I want you to know that we think that's important. We think it's important that as families and as as leaders and as people, we do everything we can to help create more opportunities for the generation that's coming behind us. But I don't think, I don't think that's the most important thing. In fact, I don't think that's the win that we're going to be talking about over the course of this series. And I don't even think it's the most important win. I just think it's something that if it happens, cool. And if it doesn't, it's okay. Because I don't want us to talk about just increasing the standard of living for the next generation. I want us to talk about increasing the standard for living. To, To give our kids and to give our teenagers and to give the men and the women in our church that are from a variety of different generations, to give the person who is not sure what they believe about church, but, but is willing to give it a shot because they trust you. We want to do everything we can to, to create environments where people can realize that the standard for living, walking with God, is so much better, so much more appealing, so much more life-giving than anything culture would say. That we don't want anyone to settle for anything less than the best that God has intended for them. But here's the catch. That we thing that I just talked about, that we thing is a we thing, but it's really a me thing and a you thing. (laughs) Because each of us are individuals. And our responsibility is to help the next gen, the people coming after us, have a right standard for living instead of just thinking about a standard of living. So here's the reality. We help the next gen win when we live a life worth imitating. We help the next gen win when we live a life worth imitating. Paul says it, I think, in such a powerful way in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He wraps up what he's writing in 1 Corinthians 10, this powerful treatise about what it means to follow God. And then he says this as he's listening to his audience because he's aware of what you're going to be aware of or already are aware of. And he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I love how another translation says it. Be followers of my example as I follow the example of Christ. You see, Paul knew something that many of us know but try to live in denial of, which is this. Someone is watching. 
It's kind of a creepy thought, isn't it? But someone is watching. Did you know that someone is watching you? Maybe it's a coworker. They hear that you're a Christian, and so they're, they're kind of looking at you as to what the standard for living is for a follower of Jesus. In fact, some of your friends will never darken the door of a church, and the only sermon they'll ever hear preached is your life. For some of us, the standard for living, the, the sphere of influence we have is with our sports team or with our classmates. For some of us, it's the very people in our home. For some of us, it's our siblings. And if you're a boss or a leader or an executive, it's the people who work for you. They're people that are watching. And maybe you feel like the great philosopher, Sir Charles Barkley, who once said, I am not a role model. Maybe you look at your life and you say, ah, maybe that's true for you. Or maybe that's true for people with a, you know, a microphone. Maybe that's true for people that, you know, care about social media, but I don't want to be a role model. I am not a role model. I did not sign up for this. This is what Charles Barkley is saying. In 1993, Michael Jordan kind of got caught for uh, spending a lot of time in Atlantic City, spending a lot of money gambling in casinos. And there was these questions raised about whether or not athletes should be role models or not. And, And Charles Barkley said, I'm not a role model. I don't get paid to be a role model, do not look at my life. And in response to that, another great philosopher of the 1990s, the great Carl the Mailman Malone, said this in response. He said, we don't choose. This is powerful. We don't choose to be role models. (laughs) We are chosen. Our only choice is whether to be a good role model or a bad one. So you and I, we we don't get to decide. We don't get to decide whether or not people are going to look at us as their standard for living. And if you are a parent, that decision has been made. If you are a leader in an organization, that decision has been made. If you're a grandparent, that decision has been made. There are people that are watching you. And the next gen is looking to you to help them figure out what it means to win in life, what the standard for living, what character looks like, what relationship looks like, what friendship looks like, what generosity looks like. They're looking at you. Because you are the ones that are influencing them. Because here's the truth, right? We imitate who influences us. Like how many of us would not want to admit that part of the reason why we wore that trashy outfit in the 1980s is because a celebrity was wearing it and we thought it was cool, right? Like confession, I used to have diamond earrings, studs in both of my ears, all right? And here's the reason why. I thought I was going to look awesome with it. And you know what? I was looking at pictures yesterday. I think I looked awesome, and I also might be in denial. But the reason why I got earrings is because I was influenced by the culture around me, the athletic culture that I was in, the hip-hop culture that I was a part of. We we imitate the people that influence us. Thankfully, I've I've got some incredible people (laughs) to imitate. I think about my mom and my dad, and, and they have influenced me in understanding what generosity is like. And so I often think, I want to be like them. Think about Stacy, and I want to be like her when it comes to the grace that she shows other people. I want to be like Aaron Reed, who when I was 18 years old, with earrings in both of my ears, would sit down with me and say, I'm not giving up on you, even though everybody else like has, and would meet with me week after week after week. I want to be like Aaron to somebody else who needs somebody to believe in them. I want to be like Chipper Flanagan, who my freshman year, of college, kept on pursuing me to go to this Bible study I did not want to go to, but he kept on at it because he saw something in me. I want to be 
I want to be like Chipper. I want to be like my grandmother who taught me what prayer looks like, who taught me what giving up like your heart for the sake of something greater than yourself is like. I want to be like her. I want to be like my in-laws who are incredible at demonstrating what it looks like to be hospitable and warm and open people. And as much as I have a list with, you know, these faces on there, I could probably add more faces to it. Here's what I want you to know. You've got your list too, don't you? Like as I'm talking, there are probably people that you want to be like to people that have a positive influence on your life that you want to be like them. And when we were kids, we wanted to be like Mike, right? And then when we got older, we wanted to be like somebody else. And here's what's interesting. When you become an adult, let's be honest, you still want to be like the person that's a little bit ahead of you. It never goes away because we were designed to imitate the people around us. But let me flip the question because your face is on somebody else's slideshow. Your face is on somebody else's story. And I wonder if your face would be there as a positive influence or a negative one. Because there is no Switzerland in this process. We either are helping the next gen win or we are actually contributing to their demise. And here's my hope for you. Here's my hope for me. Here's my hope for our church is that every single one of us will have the great joy. I mean, the incredible privilege of being able to know that because of the way we lived our lives and love the people around us, the people around us are better off because they knew us. So let me ask you this question as we jump into this series. Who is in my sphere of influence? I think there's three concentric circles. For some of us, it's our family. Parents, you're not off the hook. Your kids are in your sphere of influence. Dads, let me look at you right now. I just had a conversation recently with a public school um, administrator at a massive high school here in the city that's really struggling. I asked him, what is the determining factor as to whether or not your kids succeed? He said, I don't have research on this, but he would say this. He'd say, an involved father is the number one determining factor on whether or not our kids are doing well. So, so, so men, dads, let me look at you for a second. Granddads, let me look at you for a second. This is massive. There are people in your sphere of influence. From, from family, we go to friends. Who, who, who are the friends in our sphere of influence? The people that we work with. The people that we go to the gym with. The people that we do mommy boot camp with. You know, The people that we... Spend time with when we're doing the things that we enjoy. And lastly, that last concentric circle, who are the people that follow us? Because if you're an executive, you've got to know that your way you choose to conduct your life and your business is affecting the people way down the organizational chart. And for those of us that are on social media, all those quote-unquote friends that we have are impacted and influenced by the things that we post, whether or not they be good or healthy or beneficial. And the the second question I think is even more challenging, and and it's this one, is, is my life worth imitating? Like, is my picture on somebody's screen with a positive indicator or a negative one? And what I want to do today for the rest of our time is, as we look at Deuteronomy 6, I, I want to offer to you, if I can, a really simple paradigm that I think, if we apply to our life, will allow us to be the people that are worth imitating, like Paul said, as we do our best to imitate our Heavenly Father, and Jesus Christ. How do we become a person worth imitating? 
What I love about the Bible, maybe you don't believe in the Bible, maybe you're not sure what your, your feelings are about the Bible. What I love about the Bible is that, that God doesn't leave us wondering what the answer to that question is. He, he actually gives us the answer through his written word that is alive and good to us today. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, we find th- this language that's called the Shema. It's these five verses that for thousands of years, Jewish people have woken up in the morning. They have prayed it. They, before they go to bed, they pray it as well. It has been a cornerstone, cornerstone to Jewish faith and continues to be a cornerstone to Christian faith because Jesus uttered the same exact words in the New Testament. And what I love about what we're going to look at over the next two weeks in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, is that we don't have to pretend or wonder why these verses were written. We know exactly why they were, and it was to help the next gen win. That's why those verses are in your Bible. So here's what is going on. Moses, who led the people of Israel out of captivity from Egypt, begins to move them towards the promised land. And as he's moving them towards the promised land, they get to the edges of the the river where they're supposed to cross over and take this land that God has said is for them to establish a new people, a new culture, a new way of life. And they send 12 spies over across the river to go and evaluate what's going on in this new land. And the, the spies return, and only two of them say that the land is capable of being taken, that the land is, is good, and that God is going to come through. And when God hears the amount of bickering and complaining, the lack of faith of the people that are there, the concern about whether or not it's the right move, the fact that people over and over again say, I just want to go back to Egypt, like I'm tired of this whole thing, we were better as slaves. God makes a decree that that is so massive, and I don't want you to miss it, because I think it's in play even today. God says that what I promised the original generation, none of them will see, apart from Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who had a positive report, because they have lost their faith in me. So 40 years, they wander in the wilderness, and they never get to see the promised land that was intended for them. But the next generation is born. The next generation begins to follow in the footsteps of Moses and of Aaron. And Moses, on the precipice of knowing that his life is coming to an end, at the precipice of knowing he's not going to be able to be the one to lead them into the promised land, literally writes and speaks Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 for the sake of helping the next gen win. He is literally helping the people that are coming after him have a good standard for living in the new place that God is intending for them. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Now we've got to stop there. Because what I'm going to do over the next 15 minutes or so is I'm going to give you five Hebrew words that we're going to say together. And these Hebrew words give us the invitation in the process of becoming a person worth following. It starts with this word, hear. Moses says, hear, O Israel. The Hebrew word here is the Hebrew word, shema. Would you say that with me? One, two, three. Shema. Hebrew word shema means pay close attention or listen closely to. You know, when I hear the word hear, I kind of run it through the filter of my parenting, right? My kids hear me all the time, but that doesn't mean that they do what I ask them, right? It's like, Emma, did you hear me say clean up the living room? Yes. Did you do it? No, right? Like, that's the way that it works out. Like, that's parenting in four sentences. I mean, that's it. That's not the hear that, that is being talked about here. In fact, there's no word in the Hebrew for do 
The expectation is that the word hear or listen means that you will do it. <laughs> that obedience and hearing are connected together. So the idea here from Moses is not, hey, I'm giving you guys some suggestions that maybe you might want to consider, run it through your therapist, talk to your guru about it. Like that's not what he's doing. He's saying, listen and obey to what I'm about to tell you. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hey, if you want the next gen to win, if you want to have a good standard for living as you enter into this next season of life, remember that there's only one God. And he's the God who delivered you out of Egypt. He's the God who took care of your grandparents and your grandparents, 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 grandparents. He's the God who's always been, always will be. And he's the God who's with you right now. He's the God who parted the Red Sea. And he's going to be the one who's with you in the toughest of times. And this was massive because the people of God who are entering into this new land weren't entering into it by themselves. There were a bunch of other religious groups all around them, all of which believed not only in just a different God, but different gods. The only faith that believed in one God was the people of Israel. And and let's be honest, how easy is it for us to forget where we come from? How easy is it for us to forget about the principles and the foundations that got us to where we are? And, And Moses says, listen, you want to succeed? You want to win? Listen to the one true God. Then he continues and says, you shall love the Lord your God. That's our second Hebrew word for today. It's ahava. Say it with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Ahava. Now, there's different types of love in the Bible. This love refers to a love that has action behind it. It's the kind of, you know, action-oriented love that you have maybe for a spouse or for a girlfriend or for a boyfriend or for a parent. I remember, you know, Stacey and I celebrate our nine-year wedding anniversary, um, which this, this week, which we're pretty um, excited about. And um, when we started dating, um, back when there was these things called landlines, anybody remember those, those things, right? Gen Z's like, what's a landline, right? Google it, you'll figure it out. Um, when back when there were landlines, Stace and I, we would like talk for three, four hours at a time, right? Why? Because that was me demonstrating my affection for her. I don't like talking on the phone at all. Like my mom would call me and I'd be like, yes, no, good, right? But with Stacy, it was like this ever-flowing conversation. I was writing poetry, right? This is crazy stuff. Why? Why? Because of an ahava kind of love. So this love isn't like the love that you have, you know, like for like a distant friend or, you know, like this kind of love, you know, like we're buddies. Like not that kind of love. Like a love that is close and intimate and corresponds with action. He says, he says, you ought to love God that way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your, and then he's going to give us three words, your heart. And the word for heart in verse 5 is a Hebrew word, lave. Say that with me, say lave. Lave is in reference to the inner life, everything inside of your thoughts, your minds, your feelings, your actions. That's what it means. God's saying, I, I want you to love me with all of your inner being. Because the Hebrew people during that day did not divorce kind of our physical bodies from our soul. And and they also didn't divorce the mind from the heart. They they didn't know at that time, their biology classes didn't teach them, that the brain had neurons and that's where some thinking happened and the heart was a muscle that pumped things. So they saw the heart rather as the kind of epicenter and centerpiece where everything happened. It's where the thinking and the emotions were. One great writer, Dr. Lois Verberg, says it this way, the heart is the center of human thought and spiritual life because the Hebrews were a concrete people who used physical things to express abstract concepts. The heart was the metaphor of the mind and all mental and emotional 
activity. That's why King Solomon would say, guard your heart, your lave, because it is the wellspring of life. Everything about us comes out of that place. And so Moses is saying, hey, you want to win in life? You want to have a good standard for living? You want a great character? You want to have a great experience? You want to flourish to the fullness of your capacity? Then you've got to ahava. You've got to give God everything you got. Your mind. Let God own your thoughts. Let God own your feelings. Let God own everything inside of you. And then he would go on and say this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and then with all your soul. And that word soul, when I hear it, I read it on the surface and I think about Casper. You know, I, I think about kind of this kind of moment when, you know, somebody passes away and like this little thing hovers over the body, like that, kind of that imagery. That's not the word here that's used for the word soul. The word soul is the Hebrew word nefesh. Say that with me. One, two, three. Nefesh. And nefesh, it refers to not only the physical body, but everything that encompasses who you are. So, so here's, here's the storyline. If you want a good standard for living, if you want to succeed, here's what you have to know, Moses says. I'm about to leave you. I'm about to walk away. Your parents are all going to be passed away. Your grandparents are all passed away. It's a new era, Israel, as you cross into this world. You've never had to step into this new level of responsibility. Just remember, if there's anything I could tell you, remember to listen to God and love him with everything inside of you and everything outside of you because he wants all of you. The story goes on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the last Hebrew word for us today. It's the Hebrew word mayod. Would you say mayod? Now, when I hear the word might, I think about love the Lord your God with all your strength, might, crossfit, you know, muscles. That's what I think about. But that's not what the text means. It's actually an adverb that means very. It means love the Lord your God very, very much in increasing measure and increasing abundance. Other places where this word is used in the Old Testament, it refers to like people's wealth. Jacob was me'od, me'od, wealthy, right? Like that idea, very, very wealthy. And when you put this text together, we find a rule of life that God is inviting all of us into, that if we choose to apply to our everyday experience, will help the people in our sphere of influence get a realistic picture as to what it means to walk with God and to live a full life. And it's this. Would you listen closely to your heavenly father. Just don't hold any part of your life back from him and let your love for him increase until you've loved him with all you've got. See, that's the example people need. Did you know that, that people don't need Christians to be perfect? The standard for life that your coworkers are looking for is not a perfect you. It's just a real and honest you. A you that struggles like they struggle. A you that has concerns like they have concerns, but a you that listens closely to God and loves him with everything you've got. That is magnetic. That is life-changing. That's probably the reason why you're following Jesus too. You know, I think about that picture of the six people that I would say have impacted my life, my parents. You know, I've gotten a front row seat to watching the journey of my dad as he's walked and grown with God. And I've always seen him, not as a perfect man, but as a man who wants to listen to God and do what he says and wants to love him more and more every day.
And I want to be like that. You know, when I look at Aaron, the guy who met with me at Grandy's at 6.30 in the morning, really about 7.15 because I was never on time and blamed it on the fact that I'm Jamaican. Like, like, even though that was the case. You know, when I had surgery to remove my parotid tumor um, about four months ago, Aaron, who I've only text messaged with a little bit, talked on the phone from time to time, drove two and a half hours to sit in the waiting room and pray for me and waited till my surgery ended just so he could drive back. I want to be like Aaron for somebody. You know, I think about my in-laws who every Thanksgiving and every Easter and every holiday, it's like our family, their family, and then like 50 random people who I don't know because they pray every single holiday, every single holiday. God, who doesn't have a place to celebrate and let's let our home be there. I want to be like them. I want to be like my wife who lives and embodies grace and forgiveness. I want to be like chipper to somebody. I want to come alongside some young men and tell them, hey, life seems crazy. College is a mess, but trust me, God's got a plan for your life. And oh, do I want to be like my grandma? I want to pray like she prays. I want to believe in God like she believes in God. And here's the thing. If you're anything like me, the idea of being an influence in someone else's life, the weight of that can seem so daunting and so heavy. But let me release you with the gospel of grace today that says no one is asking you to be perfect. No one needs you to be the perfect dad. No one needs you to be the perfect mom. No one needs you to be the perfect boss. No one needs you to be the perfect roommate. They just need you to be an honest and real person who leans in and says, God, I want to listen to you and I want to do what you say. I want to love you with all that I got. Imagine if our kids knew parents like that. If our teens knew parents like that. If our businesses knew Christians like that. If our city knew servants like that. So how do we help the next gen win? It starts here. It starts looking in the mirror and realizing, God, you've entrusted me with a sphere of influence and I might be the best and the only sermon a person ever hears about the love of God. And so as we jump into this series, and as next week we talk about the practical rhythms of life that we can apply that will help us become that kind of person, I want to leave you with two questions today. And give you a moment to ponder them as we leave. Every day, I want you to ask these two questions this week. The first one is, God, am I listening closely to you? Psalms tells us, and David writes, search my heart, O God, and show me any right think, or wrong thinking within me. If you ask God, God, am I listening closely to you? He'll respond and he'll let you know where you're not. And just listen to him. And the second question, am I loving him with all I've got? Have I withhold, withheld a part of my soul from God? Am I still tolerating a secret pattern that I just don't want to give God control over because I'm worried it's going to wreck my life? Maybe it will, but maybe it'll make your life better in the long run. Am I loving God with all I've got down to the very last drop? So here's the thing. These two questions are only worth asking if we remember who we're asking them to. 
We're asking them to a heavenly father who says, fix your eyes on me, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Lift your gaze, Colin. It's not about you being a great dad because you're going to mess it up. It's not about you being a great leader because you're going to mess it up. Would you lift your eyes to me? Just follow me and watch what happens. So we sang a song in our gathering today, Be Thou My Vision. And before we even leave the room today, I want to give you an opportunity, just a few moments, to ask God to be your vision, to lift your eyes to Him, and ask these questions and let Him speak to you right now. Am I listening closely to you? And am I loving you with all I got? Because when we do, we help the next gen win.